A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and MLB Network broadcaster and host of the cinephile podcast, Madman Verk. The 80s weren't a great time for baseball. In fact, the decade ended with an earthquake postponing the 89 World Series. But to give you an idea of how rough it was in the major leagues, players hit 40 home runs just 13 times, the lowest of any decade since Babe Ruth. There's a lot of reasons for this. The game was changing. From playing styles to astroturf to the way games were broadcast and commented on, MLB was in a place of transition. Despite the state of the actual game, it was, however, an unbelievable decade for baseball movies. From Field of Dreams to Major League, Hollywood movies about baseball hit home run after home run at the box office. Adnan, what do you think it was about the climate of MLB in the lead-up to 88 that really made some of the most iconic baseball movies ever made? Like, this is kind of the decade for them. This in the 40s. Yeah, Becky, I miss it. You're right. 40s, we got Brad of the Yankees, and all of a sudden, now we got Major League. So that shows the evolution of baseball from, yeah. from Gary Cooper to all of a sudden Charlie <laughs> Sheen playing Wild yeah. Thing Vaughn. But it, it definitely was a fertile time, and it's it's a time that I miss, quite frankly. Now you rarely get baseball movies. You might get a documentary, certainly some really good documentaries, you know, showing the, the origins of baseball or just, you know, the difficulties of certain teams. But you're right. The 80s, you know, I think what it is is the 80s was an era where commercialization ran rampant. And sometimes that can be a negative, but oftentimes this is where films like Top Gun were big hits. This is where Back to the Future, which could be commercial hits, but also artistic successes were successful. And I think sports movies by their very nature are what? Underdog stories. They're about triumphs and they're about success. So I think it kind of felt right in that 80s era where greed is good, according to Michael Douglas, while it was also <laughs> good to see sports movies that we could all rally around. That's my feeling on it. I hear you. It's, we talk about that. We're sitting in 88 right now. So it's the end of the decade. We've talked about a lot of movies leading up to this point. Um, but a lot of these movies are very simplified into good versus bad. Here's the white hats. Here's the black ha- black hats. We're mm. going with that. We're all on board. But it is interesting to me that a lot of these movies are anti-corporate greed by the end of it. You know, you have the, and it really, Gordon Gecko is the like epitome of that. You are totally correct correct. But at this point, you have this whole, we're almost turning against the ownership and it's about the players in both of these movies. Yeah, I think in many ways, it's interesting. Like in Major League, you know, it's really easy to see, okay, obviously the corporate ownership is bad. In the films that we're talking about, Bull Durham, you look at the way the minor league teams are run, the players aren't making dirt, they're not treated well. And obviously in Eight Men Out, you can't get a more horrible (laughs) villain than Charles Comiskey, who is busy telling Eddie Seacott, Eddie, 29 is not 30, even though he's looking for a bonus. <laughs> like the fact he did not get 30 wins. That's one of my favorite lines, by the way. Anytime I'm arguing with somebody about the devil being in the details, I'll say, Eddie, 29 is not 30. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cam, you and I both kind of came up. We were young at this time. Do you have any memory sure. or emotional attachment to any of these films in this way? I'm young enough that, you know, Bull Durham is kind of like a, a parental movie because it's a little you know, sexy, but, uh, there was the weird echo of kids baseball as well. And I think league of their own kind of straddles. Uh, but then there's, you know, uh, the rookie, (laughs) that weird one where he breaks his arm and is good at baseball, uh, the remake of angels in the outfield. There was that big push that existed through the nineties. I think that baseball is as much, we'll actually get into, I think these are two movies that do a better job of portraying, uh, plays than some others. But it is, you know, it's easy to uh, make cinematic in a way. Uh, But I do think it's expensive, which we'll get into as well, because both of these movies were pretty indie, cheap films. And I think that that's what studios turn away from a lot these days uh, is, 
you know, do you get enough return uh, for the cost of, say, filling a stadium uh, with extras or CGI <laughs> faking it? Um, but yeah, I, I do. I am not a baseball guy. Uh, might as well throw that out there immediately. Nice pun, um, though. I appreciate I, that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know that that's I don't even deserve that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting sport because I think that a lot of people that love it uh, are able to really put themselves in the mind of the players compared to other sports. Other sports are very fun to watch and you just see the chaos on the field. Baseball is very much about like, can you put yourself in the mind of the pitcher, the catcher, the hitter? And I have that trouble i've never been good at baseball i I don't under you know the the stats mean nothing to me but uh, i think movies are great for that uh and especially these two movies are just so wonderful for like bull durham's all about inside the head of a sportsman regardless of the sport eight men out is all about truly like the you know it's the wire of baseball (laughs) movies uh it's everything every part of baseball uh and i think that that's that's just like a great way to look at the sport Uh, and then do you feel like the 80s because the gameplay was really not as exciting people just weren't hitting those records and that's what americans love a record you know it's uh my my husband and i right now are watching um uh the f1 series on netflix we're totally obsessed with it and it's so interesting the european point of view we're like it's people jockeying for third and fourth and when they come to america they're like well, what do you mean you don't? You aren't number one. Like there isn't there isn't that mentality. But because people weren't seeing those like big wins, those big record hits that we were being set up for with like the whole scandal in the '90s with um, everything that was happening there, Barry Bonds, etc. Uh, that's why we were kind of turning more to films to being like that's where we're getting our our real juice from. That's a really good point, Becky. And I think there's something to that. You know, I think in the '80s, baseball was about small ball. The St. Louis Cardinals really epitomized that. Vince Coleman, Willie McGee, those guys hit for average and they stole a ton of bases, but you didn't see a lot of home run hitters. Jack Clark was a big home run hitter. He hit 27 home runs. You know, today that's a paltry total when guys are hitting 40 home runs. And as you said, the 90s, you know, Brady Anderson's hitting 50 home runs and McGuire and Sosa on the home run chase of 98 and all the rest of it. So I think that was an aspect of it. And 80s was more about small ball. You know, it was, it was still an exciting brand of baseball, but it wasn't something that was hugely popular, I think, to, to the mainstream fan. Whereas obviously when there's more home runs, more offense, like the 90s really was a, a halcyon time for baseball because you had the most famous franchise in the New York Yankees winning four or five World Series titles from 96 to 2000. But you also had a lot more home runs being hit. And obviously that that home run chase in 98, which was, you know, obviously post-tarnished, but in the moment was awfully exciting. You had Cal Ripken, you know, able to break Lou Gehrig's record after the horrible situation of the strike in 94 and the lockout. So, I mean, 90s baseball, there's just so many different memories to it. Whereas the 80s baseball, you kind of go, all right, like I said, it was small ball. There was good stories. There was interesting mm-hmm. moments like the Royals of 85. It's funny. I just took my kids to go see Ant-Man. And the whole time uh. I was watching Paul Rudd, I kept thinking, I met him once at Sundance. He was promoting this terrible film. It was about Mo Berg, the uh, catcher turned spy. <laughs> and Rudd's a great guy, but the movie wasn't very good. But I remember asking him, I said, you know, I, I'm sure you did this film because you're a baseball player. He said, exactly. He said, I, I just got the offer to play a baseball player. I said, oh, my God, we get to shoot at Fenway Park. And he's a huge Royals fan. His favorite player is Willie Wilson going back to 80s baseball. So it, it was a baseball of a certain time that I think is nostalgic, especially if your team was winning. But, yeah, if you ask an average baseball fan, was 80s baseball particularly memorable? The answer would be no. The movie's. We're even better entertainment yeah. than the baseball. 
Perfect. Well, let's get into our first movie today. So is there an actor more synonymous with the sport of baseball than Kevin Costner? Okay, maybe Robert Redford for The Natural or Gary Cooper for the aforementioned Pride of the Yankees. But the year before Costner starred in what is arguably one of the best, Field of Dreams, he appeared in a movie that tops a number of best of lists for movies about baseball. But is Bull Durham really about baseball? And does it hold up to modern watches? And did Costner build his popularity in Bull Durham so they would come for Field of Dreams? You're welcome. Cam, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I think it holds up. Uh, I think there's a lot of baseball. It's hard to say it's not about baseball, uh, but it is a, um, definitely a more complex uh, and interesting movie, which I think uh, writer-director Ron Shelton, that's kind of his thing. He writes a lot of sports movies, but they're often sports are, are just kind of the place where the movie takes place, you know, and talking about 80s baseball, one of the things I love about Bull Durham is it starts one of the starting images is of uh, a pre-disgraced Pete Rose. And that to me is like, that's what they're talking about. You know, they're talking about that guy in the 80s. It's a movie about essentially three characters. Uh, interestingly, the voice of, of the movie is Susan Sarandon, who plays kind of this semi-mystical, you know, baseball Annie who's... Uh, Nonetheless, helping out, she's uh, she is somebody who really believes on taking on a rookie and kind of making them a better ball player, but through intellectual means as well as sexual. Uh, and then you have these two men that are kind of thrown into her orbit. Uh, you have the new kind of cocky, exciting pitcher, uh, Nuke Lelouch, played Such by Tim name. Robbins. These names are also is, good. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, they come up with the nuke as they go, but uh, uh, he is... Uh, you know, the typical kind of guy who is a natural talent, but all over the place, has no focus, uh, doesn't even, you know, necessarily have passion for the sport. He's just incredibly good at it. Uh, and then you have Crash Davis, who is uh, a guy who finds out, you know, he had his his chance at the bigs. He pretty much knows he's never going to be back there. Uh, and he finds out he's essentially been busted down to single A to coach this kid who he hates uh, to be good. Uh, and they both... Are, are struggling. Uh, Ron Shelton says, uh, you know, it's about Kevin Costner is a man who loves something that does not love him back in baseball. Mm -hmm. He won't quit, uh, but he's not getting anything out of it. Uh, and then, yeah, Tim Robbins doesn't yet know how to love it. And uh, is Susan Sarandon the person to do this? Uh, will she tear them apart? Does the rose go in the front? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's the whole, the whole thrust, I think. <laughs> I think that's exactly kind of the way to do it. Okay, so, Adam, let's start here. Is this a good representation of the Church of Baseball? Well, I'll say this, guys. I, I've been working in Major League Baseball a long time now. You know, I worked at ESPN for nine years. I worked on Baseball Tonight. I now work at MLB Network. So I'm around former Major League Baseball players all the time. And it's amazing. Whenever this topic comes up, best baseball movies, those guys all love Bull Durham. And I always have to kind of raise an eyebrow because I'm like, well, I'm not really into it as much as you guys. But <laughs> there has to be something said to the fact that they all appreciate it. And it's exactly what... Cam touched on, which is that Ron Shelton himself was a former minor league baseball player. And he has an ear for that dialogue in that world. And I think that that's really what former players appreciate is the verisimilitude of it, is that they recognize those small parks. They recognize a mechanical bowl. They recognize the groupies of Susan Sarandon. Like this, this was not some writer thinking what minor league baseball was. This was a guy who lived it and actually used real details and put it into there. And you're right about the names, but store those archetypes. There's always going to be a flashy, cocky young player who's probably not all that bright, but has got an arm that can throw 100. And there's always a salty veteran who deserves better in life but hasn't gotten <laughs> his opportunity. But that's a great line that 
that Cam said, that Shelton said, that, you know, he loves baseball. He says not love him back. There's always that guy. You hear this story every year in baseball. September, this guy got called up. He's been playing 12 years in minor league baseball, and now he gets his first mm-hmm. game for the Guardians. And I'm always torn. As a baseball lover, I go, wow, that's so cool. And then part of me goes, wow, that's sad. This guy wasted 12 years of his life for this one moment. He's got like a wife <laughs> and three kids. He's lived this vagabond life. I'm like, hey, if that's what, what makes you happy, I can appreciate that. But, but I think that's what Shelton really nailed is – both the comedy of it, but also the sadness of it and the desperation of it and the nature of minor league baseball. That You know, it's easy to glorify these guys in a certain light, but these guys aren't glorified. They're just grinding away and trying to find whatever fun they can. And let's talk about minor league baseball for a minute. So when you're looking at minor league versus major league, obviously some people get promoted up to, as they call it in the film, the show. But from my understanding, it's never actually been called the show. That was kind of introduced within this film. What are some things we need to know about minor league versus like getting promoted up in actual major league baseball? Well, I think one of the big things is you don't make much money. And everyone just seems to think, oh, if you're baseball, you make money. No, no. Those guys are making $30,000 a year. They have odd jobs in the off season. The big thing too is whenever you think of the creature comforts of athletes, and you think about protein shakes and first class airlines, like this doesn't happen in minor league baseball. <laughs> it's a lot of bus rides, especially in that era of like 80s baseball. Like you would take a bus, which would be a six hour bus ride to get somewhere and then play the game. Like there's no, there's no yeah. way in, in today's game in major league baseball, you fly in as soon as you can, first class flight, chartered. In baseball, no, the bus is leaving at 8 a.m. and the game's at 8 p.m. And it's going to be a seven hour bus ride. We're going to get there, we're going to stretch, and we're going to play. And I think that was the big thing. I think for people that don't really follow baseball, follow sports, they go, no, no, these are not spoiled guys. These are these have more in common with the nine to five guys than the spoiled guys. But they're trying to be one of the spoiled guys. They're trying to be, as Tom Wolf would say in Bonfire of the Vanities, one of the masters of the universe. They're trying to get to that spot, but they're not. So I think that that's, that's really what they nail more than anything is the fact, not that these guys are impoverished, but they're working stiffs. They're doing a job. It's really not much different than being a day laborer. It just happens to be a game that all kids play. And there's this dream the elusive for many of them that they'll get to a different spot in life. These ensemble movies ride or die based on whether or not you believe these people actually live in the same world together. And I think that's what this film does really well is it creates this camaraderie. And part of it too is that a lot of this film is improvised. Like he just kind of gave them topics and let them go. Like the whole um, uh, conversation on the mound that they have about the the wedding and things like that. What the hell's going on out here? Nick's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live, was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. All improvised, right? And the studio wanted them to cut it. The studio was like, yeah, no, this needs to go. It has nothing to do with the story of the baseball. And Ron Shelton was like, no, these are the guys. This is like why people are coming to see this movie. I think another thing Ron Shelton points out, and it's interesting when you compare this to stuff like Pride of the Yankees or The Natural, which I know I also heard you have great thoughts on that compared to the movie, which I know Ron Shelton agrees with you completely uh, because he said that the problem with baseball movies at the time when he was making Bull Durham was reverence. He's like, it was too reverential. It was too much that these guys are talking about baseball. He's and, uh, uh, to be a little crass. He says, those guys are talking about pussy. Yeah. <laughs> like they are not talking baseball. That is not uh, like, he's like, you're never talking baseball when you're out on the field. And, and I think that that is a thing that uh, always amazes me. There's a great girl on TikTok whose uh, boyfriend is in the MLB and she asks him dumb questions, but there's stuff like, you know, what do you think when you're in the outfield? 
world. And he's like, you know what? No, it's boring. And she's like, do you miss your friends? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and that stuff is, that's what Ron Shelton got is it's like, yeah, everybody. And I mean, you're literally hearing inside Costner's head sometimes. And it's, uh, that is something that was missing from these movies and from these depictions of baseball. And I think the minors are so much better for that because you're also, as you say, you're like, why, why, why do these guys do it? And this is as much a film about a guy quitting baseball as it is about succeeding. And Becky, to that point about that speech that Robert Wool gives with the candlesticks make a great gift. You know, I've heard many a story of a manager going into an umpire and saying, hey, throw me out of the game. And the umpire's like, what? He's like, just throw me out of the game. I got to fire these guys up. And I'm going to start yelling at you and pretending <laughs> I'm mad at you, but I'm really not mad at you. Like, okay. And then they start gesticulating and throwing their arms around. Like, like that's not happens. You go, just, just get me out of here. Like, I, I, we're losing eight nothing. Just throw me out. Okay, fine. Fire up the troops here. So, you know, this concept of guys like dithering on the mound. Yeah, it happens. I don't think it's happening in game seven of the World Series. But there are definitely moments in a long, monotonous minor league season. Hey, sometimes you got to make the guy laugh, right? Make him ease up a little bit. The famous football story, Joe Montana in 89, the 49ers final drive. They're down. He says to the team, hey, isn't that John Candy over there? Like just to loosen the guys up a little bit. This is John Candy. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's happened in sports for a long time. And, and you're right. I could totally see the studio going, hey, I don't get it. But that's one of those memorable parts of that movie is that Robert Wool speech. And, and Robert Wool looks like a guy who's been around baseball. He's a big sports fan. Of course, he had Arliss about a sports agent. So yeah, that, that's an example mm. of good casting and also just a really memorable scene. I love how the opening monologue is performed not by one of the players, but by a woman who loves the game. She considers it a spiritual experience. Of course, we referred to it earlier. She refers to it as the Church of Baseball. Uh, I love that this is the person who brings you into the world and really uh, coaxes you, seduces you, if you will, into loving this world, loving these players, and really just kind of setting the mood. I believe in the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isidore Duncan. I think that this is a thing that actually is another great part of what Ron Shelton does, which is I think uh, he has a great appreciation for the role women play in professional sports, even if it's not playing the sport. There are women involved uh, and that they are interesting complete rounded characters uh obviously this is kind of an unusual uh you know magic realist sort of woman i'm not sure you would find somebody like that uh but i think that the other thing that shelton gets a lot is as a filmmaker even more than a writer is the kind of like eroticism of athletics and I think to make it not a movie that's all the female gays are completely homoerotic, he brings in an interesting woman character. And then often I think also has very erotic sex scenes. But at the same time, you're seeing a guy who is shooting, you know, <laughs> guys walking around in towels and stuff. He gets that that is part of the game, too, is you got to show that these guys <laughs> have bodies and are athletes. And I think sometimes the best way to do that is through a woman. And you don't want to make her just a no nothing. So I think he writes these interesting women. I think Rosie Perez is as good in White Men Can't Jump. Um, I, like that, uh, the boxing one, I can't remember, with Meg Ryan. Like he, he tends to have a, like, like a great little moment for women. Uh, and I think it's knowing that it's a kind of a magic trick. And, and Sarandon is the start of that and I think pretty great. And I think the magic realism is a great line by Cam. Like I don't think these annies exist, but it's like a heightened version of what does exist. There's absolutely groupies mm -hmm. who are preying upon these young men looking for a good time. That, that, that is 100% <laughs> happening. And to be clear, these athletes are looking for those women going, hey, get that one over there. I'm going to take that one over there. Yeah, this, you know, to forgive the term, there's a cougar there. There's someone here. I'm interested. Okay, cool. 
But I, I don't know if these women are necessarily dialed into, you know, the art of baseball and, uh, you know, what was happening with the pros of Ring Lardner when he was talking about the Black Sox. But, I, you know, I, that may be a bit of a stretch. Like, I don't think she's locked in on ERA Plus yeah. and analytics, but but she's definitely sultry and seductive and sexy. And, and what's interesting is this. I get to remember that time, 88. Like, it wasn't like he was casting whoever the, the Pamela Anderson of that era would be. It's like, no, no, it's got to be a woman mm-hmm. in her late 30s, early 40s. Susan Sarandon is clearly attractive. Yeah. She's not a 19-year-old. She's somebody who's been kind of like Crash Davis, been around the block a little bit, not mm-hmm. weathered, but has seen life a little bit and is realistic about life's disappointments along with life's great things. And so a guy like Tim Robbins is easily gullible, and all of a sudden he's in his underwear being you know, handcuffed. You're like, okay, I can see him falling for this trap. But but she's got the brains along with the looks without being this young, buxom, bodacious blade that you'd see in one of those other types of 80s sports movies, right? The the blonde who's 19, who's yeah. got pom-poms and all the rest of it. This is like, no, no, this is a different type of female creation, a groupie, but someone who's a little bit older and a little bit wiser. I, I like, too, that it's like, he, when you're like, why do these guys do it? Part of it is the admiration of these women. And I also think that Shelton probably sees that, you know, these women are playing a useful role. It does make the guys' games better or can kind of mess up their game if it's not the right yeah. fit. Uh, but he finds a way to make it interesting. And he even finds a way to make the more kind of bimbo-y girl <laughs> an interesting plot point, too. And she does seem to serve a purpose, as weird as it is. It does seem to fall into a place that makes sense. The film know? was pitched as Lizestrata of the minor leagues, which if people are not familiar with Liz Estrada, this is a Greek story about a bunch of women who uh, basically stage a sex strikes their men, come back from war, don't go to war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is more the pride and prejudice of the baseball thing because it has that like, will they or won't they? You've got, you know, your Darcy and Elizabeth thing going on with Susan Sarandon and Crash Davis with Kevin Costner. Um, and like, like that tension just ramps up until the very end. I think it's got more of that dynamic for me than it does for Liz Estrada. I also think that the Liz Estrada is like, it's almost reversed. Yeah. Because it ends up, you know, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, Sarandon and Crash Davis, they're meant for each other from the start. Uh, and then they start using essentially the kind of old sports adage of, you know, semen retention is power. Uh, they kind of weaponize that against her. It becomes a weird thing where they're they are using uh, Nuke as a pawn between themselves, almost as like flirtation. Uh, this moves here and this moves here. But yeah, the person withholding sex uh, is eventually Costner coaching Nuke to whistle, withhold sex, which is is kind of the weird part. Well, I also part. love that Crash Davis was a real player. The name the name is an actual name. And so Ron Shelton had mm. to go to him for the naming rights to be like, hey, I want to name a character this. And the only question the real Crash Davis had was, do I get the girl? And he said, yes. And he said, okay, great. Go ahead. Have at it. Yeah, but back to your point, Becky, with Alyssa Strada. I'd like to see how many players actually spell Alyssa Strada. Much less know what the origin of the play is. I think, <laughs> think that really was a test. If yeah. we can figure out, why I, I give up all the rest of that stuff. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, again, it goes back to Shelton figuring out that sex and baseball not only coexist, like they're they're intertwined together. Like you you can't talk about one without the other. Like it's it's inseparable. Minor league baseball. Like it it's like hearing young actors why they became actors. Well, I was trying to meet a girl. I'm just trying to get laid. Like this is a, a part of the life of the mm-hmm. ballplayers. Yes, I want to make the show, but in the meantime, I want to enjoy the, the fruits of my labor. That's that's definitely an aspect of it. But I, I'm with you back in the pride and prejudice. That's a that's a better angle to it. You're right with the Darcy and. And that kind of that courtship going on oh, is yeah. pretty good. Another thing Shelton says that I really like a, a little fact he had that was enjoyable was 
you know, knowing the not to over intellectualize baseball was he like he's obviously a big movie fan. He's like you, Adnan. He's like a double. Uh, but he said that he learned his lesson when he he went to Brian De Palma's high mom and loved it so much, and he dragged the whole team, and they were so mad at him, and he tried to be like, no, it's you're it's supposed to make a conversation, and he's he's like they did not know uh, that was not the way to go, and it's like what a, what a beautiful illustration because like, yeah, what a what an off putting film that you thought your whole club would be into. I was gonna say Cam's now got us on a high mom tangent. I got to mention this because Tarantino in his new book, which I'm sure you guys have read, you know, you know, Tarantino adores De Palma. He mentions high mom. He thinks it's like one of the great films for those who haven't seen it. You got us. De Niro's never been funnier. He's hysterical in the movie. And that whole be black baby sequence is fantastic. So I love the high mom reference. That is what he thought the players would respond to. He specifically thought like, oh, the black guys are going to love this. And it's like, did not go over well. Uh, And he's like, maybe I'm not a baseball player. That I think kind of like happened inside of him. I think this is a movie, though, that is like, it's the perfect date movie. There's something kind of in it for everybody to sort of respond to, which is how it made as much money as it did. And there's this great story about Ron Shelton is kind of a hero in Durham because Durham apparently experienced this huge economic resurgence because of the movie. $2 billion of investments in new business just came pouring into Durham. The Durham Bulls actually became, went up to triple A minor, minor league instead of just A, which is like the highest you can do. So like huge resurgence for the city. So he like got this like key to the city sort of like he's a major celebrity every time he goes. And he ran into this couple who were like, we met because of Bull Durham because we both moved to Durham. We were both big fans of it. And he introduced them to his the kids and the one kid is like yeah this is crash and he looks at the other kid and the kid's like yeah of course i'm nuke like these are like seven and eight year olds that they actually named their kids this so i mean that's the thing there's something for everybody it's just making lives better in terms of the actual baseballness of it so this was written with kurt russell and with kurt russell in mind for the crash davis role mm-hmm. uh, if people don't know kurt, kurt russell played baseball himself his father played professional baseball there's a great documentary about it called the battered bastards of yeah. Baseball, which is a great title. Um, Totally recommend that one. Um, And then, of course, uh, Kevin Costner was also a uh, baseball player in college, but he wasn't good enough, which is one of the reasons he became an actor, because he's like, well, if I got to be famous somehow. How does the actual baseball gameplay feel for you, Adnan? Does this feel like a real, like real players? Yeah, I I think it's pretty good. You know, there's this thought process sometimes that the best sports movies don't have a lot of sports in them. So like, You know, Raging Bull, which is one of the greatest movies of all time, only has 12 minutes of boxing action. But of course, those boxing moments are incredibly rendered by Scorsese because they're so unique and distinctive and each fight is its own different animal. And, you know, the cameras inside the rings, et cetera. Million Dollar Baby, another great sports movie, not a lot of actual sports in it. But I'm of the opinion that if you're going to make, like those films are great films, but they almost aspire to something different. That feels like cinema, like true film, like art. A true sports movie, if we can downgrade it a little bit, has aspirations which are cleaner, which is that more rousing feeling of being an upbeat movie, entertaining, storytelling, and you know having things that are convincing enough. And I think with Bill Durham, they're able to make it look convincing enough. Like it, it's hard. Like I mean, <laughs> we're going to talk with Aitman out later, but there's like players who would watch who told John Sales, "Man, I'd love to hit that pitch. Like that that <laughs> that's 65 on our pitch, Betty Sika. Like that sucker yeah. be going. Like like we're not going to get guys that throw 95. <laughs> You're not going to get eyes that have curveballs that throw off the table. But is it good enough? Yeah, and I think it has to be good enough in your principles. Like if the right fielder doesn't look like he can make a catch, okay. If you don't buy John C. Riley as a catcher and for love of the game, we can deal with that. But you got to nail Coster. You got to nail Tim Robbins. You have to have those parts. I think both those guys 
look like athletes, look like they played baseball. Quick story, game three of the Subway Series, I went Mets-Yankees World Series back in 2000, and I'm cheering away, and in front of me is Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. And uh, <laughs> Robbins is a legit wow. huge Mets fan. Big Mets head on. Benny Agbani, go ahead, hit Tim Robbins. is high-fiving us. We're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I love taking flattery. He's like, oh, thanks. I'm like, all right. So, so he's definitely a baseball fan, just like Costner is. And I think, I think that's important. I think you got to get guys that, that look sellable. And I think the baseball action to me is definitely above average, especially because we've seen a lot of movies with much worse sports action than Bull Durham. Well, um, I'm, I'm a big hockey movie person. Like, that's my personal over. And I think about, like, the three best movies for me are Goon has amazing yeah, action. Like, they're really good. Slapshot, amazing. Like, that one's really solid. And then there's one called Winter Comes Early, also known as Face Off, if you're familiar with this. Uh, it is not a good movie, but it is a fun movie, which is a very important distinction, that has a ton of actual hockey players in it. But they're actually playing at Maple Leaf Garden, and they are playing with actual NHL players, and the hockey in that looks amazing. So it's one of those things where like, you also need the technology and the speed and people who understand how the game is going to move right. for things that fast to be able to represent what it actually looks like. And I think you have someone here who knows where to put the cameras to be like, okay, if I want the ball to come this way and people understand, you know, I'm not crossing the axis, where the ball is going, how it's being thrown, and the actual gameplay, you need that. And I think that's something people don't actually consider when they're watching the actual making of the film. Quick aside to Slapshot, Al Pacino, my favorite actor, apparently expressed interest in playing Slapshot. They figured out, couldn't skate. Like, Al, this, this is going to work if you yeah, can't skate. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? But I, I always picture Pacino in the Paul Newman role, but the Hanson brothers got to foil him up. But but yeah, you're right about knowing where to put the camera, how to make it look. Because again, Scorsese was not is not a sports fan. He's not a boxing fan, but he watched enough fights to go, okay, mm. how can I make this look visceral? Every punch is going to hurt. Everything is going to hit. So you don't necessarily have to know the sport, but you have to know how it's going to look. And Shelton, to his credit, knows the sport and knows how to make it look, how to make it sing. So he's got... He's hitting the uh, he's hitting the hat trick, so to speak. Yeah, he also apparently knows chemistry because this is where Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon uh, ended up with each other. They ended yeah. up in a decade decades long partnership that got them banned from the Oscars, <laughs> and it produced uh, uh, Jack Robbins, who is also a filmmaker as well. So he actually credits this film with being the reason why he exists. And his godfather is Ron Shelton. I think Letterman, when he introduced mm. him at the Oscars, said, "Stay tuned. They're probably pissed about something." I can't remember who was them specifically. It's <laughs> yeah. a great line. <laughs> Between them and John Sales of the next one, it's like, yeah, these are the people who who really uh, got canceled for not liking the Iraq War. But, hey, perfect. I think hey. that is the perfect place for us to move into a little bit more controversy. It's Eight Men Out, and that's coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Yes, Becky. <laughs> so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. <laughs> Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing, too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that everybody's seen, everybody's going to consume it differently. And I think that that's why we like to get on like a diversity of voices, because uh, quite often, yeah, you just don't expect what you expect. And I and I think it's been, like, very satisfying. Yeah, and I mean, then you get an episode like uh, Diabolik Magazine's incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Yodorowsky's Holy Mountain, and I don't think I've heard the word uh, Beatles butthole used so intellectually <laughs> before, nor do I think I ever will again. And, of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can't, of course, name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests. So I'm going to let you do that right now, but if you want to hear more, 
Of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuite.ca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. In the mid-2000s, the Major League Baseball world was rocked by a steroid scandal that left fans devastated and the world at large wondering if Major League Baseball would ever recover from the shame. It's a story I'm surprised hasn't made its way to the big screen in a meaningful way yet. There's a documentary, Screwball, but as of now, there's no fictional feature film. But perhaps the sentiment that scandal caused, from the fervent love of the game, the pressures to win that lead to the betrayal of trust of the fandom, has already been captured in John Sayles' masterful Eight Men Out, a story about another baseball scandal that shocked the world. Now, Adnan, this is one you love. Uh, what about it sticks with you? Yeah, it's one of my favorite, not only baseball movies, but favorite movies ever, Becky. And I, and I love everything about it. And I think why I love it is that, A, it gets the baseball right, and it gets the history right, and that era being over 100 years ago. But it's also about innocence lost. And I, and I think, you know, it's a really exceptionally sad movie. And it's generally moving and poignant and touching. And even when I think about it, I get choked up sometimes thinking about what these guys lost. And I really appreciate the artistry of the film. And so much of the credit goes to John Sayles, who's such a brilliant filmmaker and a really an original voice and in independent film in America as the writer and director of the movie. Uh, there's so many memorable moments from it. I think the cast is amazing. So many young actors on the precipice of stardom. But to me, that if you just said in a couple of lines, what is it about Eight Men Out? I think it's about innocence loss. It's about uh, about an American generation really having their heart torn apart and heartbroken. He was actually inspired to write it by the Watergate scandals because he was like, what's another example of a huge American scandal that kind of shook the core of the nation and their faith? Mm. But Anand, can you give our listeners just a very quick plot summary of this one for people who might not be familiar with this? Sure. So this was a juggernaut of a team, the Chicago White Sox back in 1919, but they were being underpaid by their very cheap owner, Charles Comiskey. And so gamblers go to them, including Christopher Lloyd. That's right. This is quite a scene. Jolting to see Dr. Emmett Brown, just three years after Back to the Future, here playing Burnsy, a gambler. But <laughs> the gamblers go to them and say, we'll make you a deal. You hit the first bat of the first game. The fix is on. We'll give you $10,000 each. You guys lose the game on purpose, although you're heavily favored against the Cincinnati Reds. And everybody wins. You guys get the money your owner won't give you. We'll win. Nobody will know about it. Of course, people found out about it. It was a gigantic conspiracy. It led to the first ever commissioner being named in Major League Baseball. And Kennesaw Mountain Landis, speaking of the all-name team, <laughs> and he banned those players. That's why it's called Eight Men Out. And it's not without some controversy. Shoeless Joe Jackson was an all-time great player, took the money, but there's no evidence he didn't play well. He hit 375 in the series. And Buck Weaver, who's so beautifully played by John Cusack, Never took the money, was aware of the conspiracy, never took money, and he was also banned from baseball. And kind of like, as you said, with the Watergate scandal, it felt like a real important moment in American history where something that people loved and appreciated and treasured baseball was ruined by gambling. So Sales points to the setting of this film as a time of transition and loss of innocence for Americans. Um, Prohibition is about to start, which is going to usher in the age of the gangster, and with that, like a ton of dirty money, violence, and uh, corruption. Now, as I mentioned earlier, he was inspired to write this in the 70s because of the Watergate scandal. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the year after this movie was released was the last year of Reagan's administration, which, and a lot of people may not know this, was marked by just a ton of scandals. And up until today, his administration holds the record for the most officials 
investigated, indicted, and or convicted. So among them, he had the Iran-Contra affair, the Department of Housing and Urban Development grant rigging, uh, dozens and dozens of lobbying and EPA scandals. In fact, it's believed that one of the reasons Reagan was elected was his team somehow got a hold of Jimmy Carter's debate notes ahead of the election in 1980, and that helped him just destroy him in debate after debate. And this wasn't disclosed until 1983. The FBI still don't know exactly what happened or they haven't released it. So it completely makes sense that this movie would hit the way it did in 1988. 100%. I think that's what it's about. It's about heroes. And at that time, baseball players are heroes for these little kids. I mean, they still are for little kids of a certain age. And all of a sudden, that illusion, that dream, that fantasy was wiped away. It was replaced by the cold, hard reality that these guys are human. These guys are normal. They're going to make mistakes. They were seduced by money. And what I love about the movie is that, you know, there's so many different angles to it. You can watch this and be angry at these players for ruining the hearts of young Americans, but you can also be very sympathetic towards them and say, I understand what it's like to feel that you're being aggrieved by your owner. You can make a bad mistake and then somehow try to get out of it and it's too late because then the owners, in this case, the gamblers are going to punish you and kill you and harass your family. So I, I think there's there's so many aspects to it. That's what makes the film so interesting is that, there's no real black and white here. There's lots of shades of gray and there's lots mm-hmm. of real complicit in what happens. Oh, I, I like it because, yeah, like you say, the shades of gray are kind of wild. You you don't really like it does kind of leave it up to you because uh, it often sits you with the play or the other players who aren't in the conspiracy or the the writers trying to decide are they throwing it or are they not? There's very little. uh person obviously throwing it you know that they obviously do hit the player and there's a couple things that seem pretty sketchy but especially as the series progresses you start wondering you know is is this person doing it or not doing it and the interpersonal fighting Uh, and and yeah i I love that some people you know they they don't like the book because it's it's historical fiction more than like a, a deep, deep record of history. But uh, what can you do? <laughs> you know, there's a, there is, you'll never know. Uh, and I kind of like that. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's interesting too, because I think it, it, it again plays with that reverence uh, in a weird way where it's there. And I think it's really established maybe a next level of reverence with the the removal of these players. And, and I think especially in the modern context, you know, there's all these players kind of throughout history now where you're like, man, does it, you know, is it okay, great that they're not in a hall of fame, even if they were one of the greatest, like do, does one mistake or whatever make, and is it a mistake or is it worse? I don't know. I like all those, those questions for sure. And also it's just a wide ranging movie. What, what a, of a man who makes a bunch of like Altman-esque massive character pieces, this might be his biggest. He had a really tough time finding funding for this one, interestingly, because he blames, uh, and and Ron Shelton talks talks about this a lot, is there is really not a lot of international market for baseball, is what he says, in terms of film sales. Um, People are happy to watch, you know, movies about boxing or things like that, but for some reason, baseball just doesn't resonate with the the larger market. So huge in Japan, huge in Japan. We (laughs) love, they love baseball there, but China just doesn't really play it. Um, Russia doesn't really play it. Like these these overseas markets that uh, Marvel movies, things like that tend to, they tend to do a lot of overseas uh, sales to genre pictures. Um, but 
I think this one sort of transcends that universality of that. And I want to kind of point to the two of the producers that were really instrumental in making this work, which were Midge Sanford and Sarah Pillsbury. And we've talked about them before. They were two producers that uh, I think they started out at Columbia and then they just sort of made their way around and they they helped a lot of independent filmmakers. So they were um, instrumental in getting Desperately Seeking Susan Maid and getting Madonna cast specifically in that film right before mm. she blew up. We've talked about that before. Highly recommend that episode. Super fascinating about her rise as well as River's Edge, which is one of our favorite Ooh. films here on the podcast. Um, that, again, huge star launcher for um, Keanu Reeves and Crispin Glover. And that movie is just bananas if you haven't seen it. Very hard to watch. Absolutely amazing. These two were really big movers and shakers in the independent market, making sure that a lot of these independent filmmakers got their kind of dream projects made that wouldn't have been made otherwise. And this had been a film that he had ri- that John Sayles had written 11 years previously. It's the first film he wrote um, that he was fascinated by. It's what got him his agent. It's what uh, got him a screenwriting um, contract with uh, Corman to write Piranha, and yet he didn't get to make it until 11 years later. I love that you look at this and you're like, oh yeah, this guy can write Piranha. <laughs> Let's just yeah, have sure. him do that. Yeah, that's an amazing <laughs> winding road. I had no idea he'd written it so well in the past, Becky. That's crazy. Because I, when I think of sales, I think how great Return of the Seacock of Seven is, you know, those young independent films. Mm-hmm. Obviously this one, I think, was a hit generally with the critics. And Lone Star to me is a film that's so great because it feels like a modern day Chinatown with its echoes of incest and the western and there's just so many passion fish is obviously a great performances with alfred woodard and mary mcdonald so it's it's interesting when you frame it within sales's career but i i would have thought this had a natural progression like after he'd made his bones a little bit that's amazing to me that he'd written it so early on that, that's wild we should also point out that john sales as well is instrumental in the independent field he would use his own money to help people fund movies that they couldn't get funding for so karen kusama's girl fight was mm. actually funded by him personally wow yeah, he's a uh, he's a very interesting guy, and I mean the the long road is, is also kind of interesting because part of it is is literally uh, the rights were in litigation uh, with Elliot Asinoff and the book. I think because you know he's writing about real people, and that often you know, there's somebody out there who's mad about it. It sounds like actually the the movie managed to balance that a bit better, and and Sales says he never ran into anybody who was related to anyone involved or anything that really had a problem with it. Uh, and he managed to meet a few players from the time and, you know, bat boys and what have you who said they liked it. His career is obviously s- strange and interesting. Uh, he, he writes, as you say, these movies like, uh, like Piranha, Battle Beyond the Stars, surprisingly good Star Wars ripoff. Alligator, my favorite alligator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Howling was right before. And yeah, he he uses that money to make Return of the Sikaka 7. That starts to build him up. He has this crazy uh, 1983 where he does uh, Baby It's You and Liana, which is an early lesbian film. Uh, and through those, plus he is also making all the music videos for Bruce Springsteen at the right. time. Also odd. Uh, he gets a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he's the first fiction filmmaker. Uh, and I think arguably the most like mainstream to get a MacArthur Genius Grant, which lets him make a uh, brother from another planet and mate one yeah. kind of as like separate things. And then I think mate one and uh, eight men out yet. Yeah, like you say, that puts him on a streak where suddenly he's like in an Oscar conversation. It took so much for him to get to the point where he could make this. And then you also read that <laughs> it sounds like they very barely sure. made this because, you know, uh, getting this amount of actors, getting the period piece is obviously crazy. And even the, 
period bats and period gloves sounds like such a, an issue even in 1988, which is kind of fascinating. And ultimately, I think even if you with all that being said, if you're like, all right, period piece, we're going to scrounge. It's a happy ending, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's just really downbeat ending. It's very melancholy and sad. <laughs> yes. Like, well, this definitely isn't going to play well in China and Russia. Like, are you kidding me? Like, like we, no. you're going to make it cheap, but it's a happy ending. If it's like the natural and the scoreboards pop up, oh, no, no, nothing at all like that. No, no, it's quite a sad yeah. ending. That That's a tough sell for a studio to green light. Perhaps not the same date movie that you would ever bolt her. <laughs> no. Let's go do a double no, feature, hon. Come all. on. <laughs> yeah. The, the deepest you get with a wife is like, I'm going to shoot your wife, <laughs> which is like, oh, great. Uh, the, but yeah, it's, it's also a weird movie because it doesn't like uh, when I call like it's it's uh, probably overstated to call anything the wire or something but why this movie feels like the wire to me is it's also not holding your hand like god help any uh, other country trying to process this movie because you really need to know a little about old time baseball you need to know a little about uh, you know the, Chicago you need to know who Arnold Rothstein yeah. is or like god help you uh, and yeah so it's kind of interesting too because it's very much throwing you in and letting you interpret what you can and I'm sure I misinterpreted a bunch of stuff. And like, yeah, if I if I didn't know who Studs Terkel was, I, I would be like, why did you cast that non-actor? You know, it's it, there's all sorts of weird things that are just, I think sales in all his movies are like, this is America. Like, I trust you. You will find the people that you relate with and, and figure out what's going on, especially in his films about the past. I just want to quickly mention of the cast, because in case we forget, but now that you mentioned like knowing Arnold Rothstein, I thought Michael Lerner was so good in this movie because he's not being given a bunch of showy scenes. He's got that one great scene where he says, you know, as a kid, they make fun of me. Hey, fat boy, look at this, fat boy, look at that. Like, who are they looking at now? And it's such a great scene. And it, it speaks to the fact that, you know, America is built so much on avarice, you know, so much of this is about I'm better than you and I'm going to show you and watch this. I'm going to throw the World Series. You think I can't do it? Watch this. <laughs> like, I'm going to yeah. do it because it's possible and nobody else has done it. Like, it's part of this is hubris, but like, it's it's a fascinating yes. collection of yeah. characters. I mean, the casting is insane. Like, even Michael Rooker with hair was a delight for me. Like, that was... Sure. And uh, at the time, a huge gamble because he was pretty much just Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So that's also a weird thing because nowadays you're like, yeah, that's a perfect Rooker role. Like, like, asshole. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Of course you'd get Rooker. But it's like, that was, again, a very interesting and unique But this got greenlit based on the fact that they had, the studio had a list of, like, these young stars that they wanted cast in the film. And they managed to get three of them. D.B. Sweeney, John Cusack, and Charlie. Sheen. Those were three that were on both their lists that they were like, okay, if they got two of them, it would be greenlit. And I love that John Cusack originally was cast as Shoeless Joe, but he was like, I don't think I can do that because I can't play at that level. But he said he would he would agree to play a guy whose nickname was once Error a Day Weaver. He was like, I can, I can handle that. <laughs> Which, what we know of Cusack now completely makes sense. Um, but I got super excited to see Studs Terkel. I was like, Studs Terkel? Oh, like, that was the person. Yeah. So it's such an interesting combination of like this old world and this new world kind of colliding, which you're seeing in the film, both in the casting and and uh, as well as in the actual film itself. And it's very reminiscent. We just finished talking about 1977 of um, these big disaster films where like old Hollywood was ending, but you had all these new stars and nobody really knew who was a star. So they would just throw them all together. So you have like Jimmy Stewart in the same movie as Jack Lemmon, as, as Brenda Vaccaro, like just like these weird combinations of people, Gene Hackman and Red Buttons and Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Like this kind of feels the same same way. Yeah, and those three actors, it's interesting, Becky, because you're kind of just trying to hit on them, right? Like, you're not sure which one's going to be the next big thing, but you feel like 
Two of these three mm. will be. Like, D.B. Sweeney was not a major star, but he's terrific as Shoeless Joe. I mean, that first scene where he's covering his eyes, looking at that light, I'm like, yep, I can see Shoeless Joe being involved with these types of things. Simple guy, but he could hit. You know, got the big chaw in his mouth yeah. and just seems like a guy from that era in baseball. You know, Cusack's terrific. He, he could totally seem as this idealistic guy, kind of a pain in the ass. Like, not a guy that a lot of the teammates like, right? Because he's such a, such a you know, goody two-shoes, rebel rather than just shut up, Bucky. We don't want him on the team. Like, he's he's not the guy <laughs> we'd want in Bull Durham out there chasing him. Like, no, he's the guy going to bed at 10, so annoying and just 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 frustrating. And then Charlie Sheen, you know, he's happy Felsch. He, he looks like the Navy. He's happy. He's got one of the best yeah. lines in the movie. He goes, I may be dumb, fellas, but I ain't stupid. Like, I, I get, <laughs> like if we're all taking money, I'm going to be taking money too. And again, Charlie Sheen's a guy that can play, who can throw the ball 80 miles an hour, make mm-hmm. a catch. With the, he's got that great team where he's not sure he's going to make the catch there in right field. The way the camera zooms on in his face, he makes the catch, then kind of regrets making the catch. What are the consequences of this now? So I agree that that trio of actors are all really good in the film. Yeah. And I love that it's such a weird, you know, to take your context now of Charlie Sheen and especially because of Major League, you're like, yeah, this is good. He's just the baseball guy. But like, this is a guy coming off platoon. Like really taking a w- crazy pay cut, like he he was the next big thing, but just a yeah, a man who's passionate about baseball, and I think that that's what this story also brought out is like yeah, this is the the story that you know baseball nerds have wanted to see on screen uh, this whole time, and, and then I also think you have on the flip side people who probably at the time were not huge uh but you know now you're like oh yeah david straight yeah. of course he's of course he's an old-time baseball player but it's like no no this is the guy that went to college with uh, john sales uh and you know john mahoney yes. again uh, all these like uh theater actors bill Irwin, guys that you love that are always yeah. good but uh he's obviously doing his best to push these guys two places of prominence amongst these big actors. Strathairn's so good. I mean, this is a great, if you do a double bill of this and good night and good luck, you're like, oh my God. Like you talk about an actor who is just built of like a different era. Like he's, he's incredible. Obviously he's moral. Yeah. And as Eddie Seacott, he's so good because he's, he's morally compromised. He feels like the leader of these guys because he looks a little bit older than them. Like he's not a lot older than Charlie Sheen, mm-hmm. but he's, he's got like five or six years. You could see him being that veteran guy going, Hey, Got that rubber arm. Like I've only got so much time left. He's the guy that's married. He's the one with the kid. He's got more responsibilities. I mean, the scene where he lies to Sales playing Ring Lardner is so good. The way when when Sales just says like, "You lied to me, Eddie." Like the 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 emotion behind that is so well done. And you're right about John Mahoney. John Mahoney's got one of the most emotional scenes in the movie. And you watch it now, everyone's like, "Oh, Frazier's dad." I'm like, no, but he's got this great courtroom scene where you know he, oh, yeah. the the buildup and the way the snide question of what do you think of them now. Like, you know, because he's being so sympathetic to these guys going, hey, listen, I I get it, right? You want a little bit of money here? Like, I'm not judging anybody. I wouldn't do it, right? Kid Gleason wouldn't do it. Like, I'm on the up and up, but I I don't judge guys. But what do you think of them now? And he takes that pregnant beat. You could drive a Mack truck through that pregnant pause. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I think that the greatest ball club I ever seen, period. Period. Like, that's a great feel-good moment. Yeah. It's... So good. And, and I like that. Yeah. The sales said that. Yeah. All they talked about was like that you are disgusted, but you can't help being proud. Like they are still the team and like there's no that is your job to be proud of them. And you can't you can't push it down. And it's like, ah, that's I mean, so is good. there an opening that okay. sets you up better for a fall than this opening where you watch the kids scrambling to get money and then they get in there and they're so excited and they're in the middle of the crowd. <laughs> and you're just like, I love these kids. and They're going to be so let down. <laughs> like it's just... yeah, Sometimes you just need good faces. Like those kids got good faces. They they look yeah. like wide eyed mm. baseball idealists. <laughs> yeah. right? Those caps and the high socks and the knickers. And like, oh, they, they, they look like 1920s baseball kids. That's good casting by sales. Yeah. 
All right. Now, Sales has talked about if he were to do another film about some sort of like American scandal, he thinks that the Jim Thorpe story is mm. the next story that should be made, uh, which if people aren't familiar with that, uh, James Thorpe was uh, an Indigenous American. Um, he is considered one of the most versatile athletes ever. Uh, he competed in the Olympics for classic pentathlon, decathlon. He played football, professional baseball, and professional basketball, but he was stripped of all of his medals because of the Olympics used to be incredibly, incredibly strict on amateur stuff. Like, you could not have made money doing anything, and he was stripped of all of his medals for this and kind of was relegated to this, like, we don't talk about him pile, despite the fact that he just had so many incredible accolades. If you were to make something about the great American scandal, Adnan, what would you make? Well, first, I'm terrified, Becky. I think you have a webcam in my home, because yesterday (laughs) I finished Path Lit by Lightning, which is the new book about Jim Mm. Thorpe by David Marinus. There we go. And I was pounding it out because, of course, I borrowed it from the library, and it's a 14-day loan book. They already renewed it once for me. It's due back this Thursday. I started yesterday about page 480, and it's 575. So I was pounding through last night. So thank God you mentioned Jim Thorpe. I can ask ask any Jim Thorpe questions you like. He's buried in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, which is shocking because he's from Oklahoma. I can tell you about Burt Lancaster playing him in the movie, which is very bizarre. I didn't realize Michael Mm -hmm. Curtiz directed the movie, by the way, but Casablanca himself, Mm -hmm. he directed the Jim Thorpe movie, which was wild. But Thorpe is a phenomenal figure. I could totally see why sales would be interested in it because, yeah, he was completely much maligned and mistreated. And being a proud Indigenous American, I mean, there's it's incredibly rich and dense book because Marinus, who's one of the great writers of biographies, he's written books on Obama and Clinton, but I know his sports stuff. He wrote the definitive biography of Roberto Clemente, and he wrote the great biography of Vince Lombardi, the Packers coach called when pride still mattered. But the point that Marinus really makes, and I think why sales would be so attracted to it, is that a, it's just, it's a captivating story. This guy grows up in Oklahoma. You know, this is not a sports factory here of Native Americans. He goes to the 1912 mm-hmm. Olympics in Stockholm, absolutely dominates, gets the medal stripped by him because he had played baseball in like Eastern Carolina. Like it's almost like in a technicality, who cares? But the consistent yeah. theme of his life is the white superiors around him don't really go to bat for him. Pop Warner in this case, uh, who's his football coach. He goes to the NFL, absolutely dominates, can do every single position. In baseball, he wasn't great. Couldn't hit a curveball, but was kind of mismanaged as well by his coach, uh, by, by his manager, Joe McCarthy. So, but but even back to your point, can you think of anybody that could play baseball, football, and then do the Olympics? And he was incredible at the Olympics and incredible at football and a decent baseball player. So it, it really spans mm-hmm. American history. And I would love to see what sales could do in, in Thorpe's hands. But um I can't think of one off the top, but now that I'm on this Jim Thorpe train, yeah, I want to see John Sales <laughs> because because what's amazing is this, like, and this happens often, right? Later in life, everyone kind of looks back, goes, "Do you realize how great he was? Like, he was the preeminent athlete of the first half of this century. Like, if you they did lists mm-hmm. of Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey and Bobby Jones, and like Jim Thorpe is at the top of that list. So, if you think of great athletes since then, and you want to include Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, and LeBron James, and Those are all worthy, but Jim Thorpe really stands above them all. Now, Adnan, as we bring this episode to a close, we talked about how this is very much an independent film. What were kind of some of the details that you were most impressed by in this film? Yeah, I just think, oh, the actual baseball, I was going to say, imagine how tough this was. I mean, literally, these gloves are the size of a guy's hand. Like, it's one thing to say. The technology's changed. Yeah, like that that was remarkably difficult for those guys to figure out how to play baseball at that time. And and there's a couple of scenes where it's a little bad, like trying to like muff errors. You see him kicking in the dirt and stuff. And it's uh, 
I can't remember the actor's name, lefty over pitches in game two. He doesn't look like he's throwing particularly strong velocity. But Sales is talking about the fact, again, this is pre-CGI. Like He had to have a certain number of fans in the stands, mm-hmm. right? Okay, I got 5,000 extras. Okay, now go over here while we shoot all this stuff. Like I, I couldn't imagine the logistics of shooting those baseball scenes, which I think are, are rendered pretty well. But I can't imagine how much easier it would be now with CGI getting all those oh, yeah. fans in there. I don't like a CGI crowd. I find I can read <laughs> yeah, a CGI crowd from a mile away, and it doesn't give you that same, like, amp up as you get when you're watching, like, you know, a crowd, an actual stadium full of people, when they're able to film in, like, the actual Super Bowl or whatever, when they give them, like, five minutes to shoot, and then you get the actual roar of the crowd. There really isn't anything quite yeah. like that. I mean, I, the, I'll, I'm probably repeating myself because this is maybe my favorite film uh, quote of all time. But when Ron Howard was working with Roger Corman and, and making, I believe, Grand Theft Auto, uh, he they were showing a, a, a real you know, road race with an audience and a crowd. And uh, as he said, Corman afforded him about 12 people. <laughs> and he was like, Roger, I, I can't keep rearranging these people. <laughs> you, you've got to get me more people. And he said, Ron, I have good news. If you finish this movie with 12 people, you'll never have to work with me again, <laughs> which is uh, always a great moment. But yeah, it's, it's all these logistics is so crazy. And I love when you hear these stories about attracting a crowd. Uh, the the uh, the big one that people often also tell is in Selena, they managed to actually fill, I think, the Astrodome uh, with people. But it was because they filmed it so shortly after her death and also because they said they hyped up. The fact that uh, this might be your chance to like boo Jennifer Lopez, who everyone thought was miscast at the time, but she managed to really turn it around and delight people, and everyone kind of left being like, "Wow, I man- I got to see a Selena concert after Selena died." But uh, yeah, they they knew that the best way to do it was to be like, "Hey, what?" Like put a little couple op eds in the paper of like, "What if she's bad? Shouldn't we show up?" <laughs> and uh, and that really filled the seats. Uh, but yeah, it's what, what a what a challenge, and this is the reason why you don't see a lot of indie sports movies unfortunately i also want to thought of eight minutes i was gonna say becky just how much i love the ending because you, you've got basically them kind of celebrating right they're having drinks and cigars they're not going to prison but then the, the script tells you oh by the way they're banned from mm-hmm. baseball they like, never that. worked again yeah. Yeah. yeah that's such a great job by sales to be like hey it looks all glorious but no this is the reality this is the underbelly and then yeah. that great final scene i always think it's longer than it is because it's so strong in my memory but when i watch the movie again i go it's it's such a quick scene of Sheila's Joe playing baseball and the way these two guys mm-hmm. are rapping away, talking as fans do. And they go, oh, is that him? No, I can't be. No, I see him. No, I can't be him. And then you see John Cusack sitting there. Buck Weaver is a little, not necessarily heavier, but a little bit aged now, a little bit wiser. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, I saw him play. You know, best I ever saw. Hit, run, throw. He was the best. He's like, so how about it? Is that him? He's like, nah, nah. Those yeah. guys are all gone now. Like, there's such a great melancholy delivery to that line. It's beautiful, blood. Well, we started out this episode talking about merchandising. We should end this episode talking about 80s merchandising. This had trading cards. There was a whole series of trading cards where, like, some of them are just pictures of, like, here's Ring Lardner, you know, talking to the boys, like, real action shots By the way, like how that. good is Sales giving himself that role? Because he Amazing. was tall and imposing like Ring Lardner. Yeah. And that song, Forever Blowing Bubbles, when he starts singing on the train, I am Forever Blowing mm. Ball Games. Hilarious scene. Really well done. Oh, I love when, when directors cast themselves in like the most scene grabbing mm. role and they pull it <laughs> yeah. off like yeah. that's the biggest yeah. thing 
<laughs> like we were talking about Tarantino. Tarantino, I, you know, I got no problems with him putting himself in his movies, but you really see the difference when you've got him op- uh, opposite Harvey Keitel, right? <laughs> like that just kind of mm. happens. Yeah. The only other one I wanted to point out that is like, because uh, I know you're also a fan of this uh, film, Adnan, is pointing out that the obviously the number one fan of this movie is Ken yeah. Burns because Ken Burns baseball features almost all of the actors <laughs> and some of the people as presenters uh, and I think if people have seen Amen Out or haven't and just watched it and enjoyed it uh, baseball is like the next logical yes. thing and I say this again as a guy who is not a huge fan of the sport uh, that is a, it's just such a watchable documentary and so interesting and exciting and and also, yeah, reminds you of some of the uh, repulsive past oh. of baseball <laughs> and maybe makes you wonder if what these guys did oh, was so no bad like, uh, based on some of the sometimes management. Sometimes it's yeah. all beauty in the eye of the beholder, right? Some of these guys are colorful. Some of them are repugnant. It depends on which eye you're looking through and yeah. which time and date you're looking at. But yeah, <laughs> I love baseball. I saw the fact Ken Burns added to it, like the fact he added a 10th inning. Yeah. And I interviewed him uh, last year when he released the Ali documentary. I said, you've got to do an 11th inning. He said, oh, there's no way. He said, because I have like six documentaries on the go right now. I can't do it. I said, well, yeah. you're going to do more baseball. But I, I, it's, it is a landmark achievement. It's amazing. Perfect. And I think that is the perfect place for us to wrap up this episode. So Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, Thank you. And and I wanted to shout out uh, just because I didn't wasn't able to name her at the time. uh, The TikTok user is named Hannah Randall. And honestly, it's truly as close to Bull Durham as you'll get (laughs) of uh, asking uh, baseball players silly questions (laughs) and just getting what is going on. I love that they still in Major League Baseball clock when people are either quoting Bull Durham or in the in the whole like cliche uh, interview scene. Mm. or are just doing that thing. I just love that that's still clocked. Uh, Ad and Burke, thank you for bringing authenticity to our episode. Oh, Becky, this was awesome. I can't believe we did an entire episode and didn't bring up the speech from Bull Durham. Like, at what I know. I should bring it up. Yeah. I said, no, I actually like that we didn't do it. It would have been cliche to talk about it. So you know what? We're not going to talk about the DJ and the soft, slow, wet kisses that last for days. We're good. <laughs> We're just going to let it stand on its own. All right, and you can catch Adnan on the MLB Network as a commentator. And you can also check out his excellent podcast, Cinephile, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can join us in two weeks where critic and writer Mariah E. Gates is going to be looking at Tokyo Pop and the decline of Western civilization with us. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Adnan Verk as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>